Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Poisoner's Cabinet. I'm Sinead. And I'm Nick. And this is your weekly podcast exploring the lives of the great poisoners and poisoning cases from across the centuries and creating curious cocktails inspired by the tales that we tell. And it's episode 17. It's a very high number. <laughs> is it? It's a very, I think it's a very high number. Can't quite believe we've done 17. <laughs> I know, it's quite nice, isn't it? 17 sort of feels sort of edging on maturity. It feels like, yes, we've done a grown-up thing. It is. You're like on the cusp of adulthood. It's still wild and crazy, but, you know, we've learned. We've learned. Because normally it's like, oh, we've done three. Ah, oh, bugger that. <laughs> Bored now. Yes. Well, maybe all the listeners were thinking that, going, they won't stop. Oh, God, they keep on going. We're just tuning every week to see if they're dead yet. Uh, how are you, Nick? I'm very well. Lovely. Yes. Good. Don't want to hear any more. Good. <laughs> Enough of that nonsense. Get on with the show. Well, moving on. Yes, the small talk's done. <laughs> any... um, I want a story. It, and, well, any poisonings this week. Don't try and cover up your mass murder <laughs> with you galloping towards the story. Can't story. Move along, move along. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Okay, never mind, never mind. Let's just gloss over all of that, shall we? You never ask if I've ever committed any poisonings. But you know what? It's best not to tug at that thread. Well, Nick, dare I ask, <laughs> are you ready? to drink cocktails and talk about poison oh i'm ready or 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 Ooh. drink poison and talk about cocktails no no i'm i'm fine oh, i'm up for a cocktail <laughs> it's cocktails all the way see we have to do a cocktail before we do the story because how 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 could we do our story without a delicious beverage well to... i have this gin and tonic here <laughs> so that, that's helping i have to say oh, stop stop breaking the magic you know we don't drink until we have this one solitary drink that passes Absolutely. our lips. It's the only, the, the one cocktail we have all week. All week. Well, obviously we make a cocktail every single week that is inspired by our story featuring a secret ingredient. Yes. Uh, my story this week, so I chose the secret ingredient, and it is art. Mm. <laughs> mm. That's all I'm going to say on the matter. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, there was a there was a backup which I we, managed. We could have made a perfectly lovely cocktail out of. No, no, no. It's not you the were... one you're thinking no, of. No, no. no, 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 no it's not the one you're thinking of. It's not the one you're thinking of because I did send you an ingredient, and it turns out that was lies. <laughs> no, no, no. Art is an inspiration. Art feeds the soul. It feeds the mind. It feeds our drinking yeah. habits. Okay, because all artists have needed to turn to a cocktail at some point or another. <laughs> you justify it any way you wish. 
I asked you, Nick, what you could come up with, and there was a stony silence for about well, a week. <laughs> came up with the same cocktail, but then go, I haven't got any of that stuff in the cupboard. So I can't <laughs> make it, and I've got to go to work, so I can't go to the shops. So I had to step in and help Nick this week on the cocktail-making front. Very exciting. We have got... An artist's special. An artist's special! There we go. Yeah. Art, art inspires the cocktail. An artist special. Yeah. What a lovely sounding thing. It's a good sounding name. I must admit, I'm dubious about some of these, about the ingredients. Just because they would not be my first spirits of choice. I, I, I'm quietly confident mm. about this one. It's curious. They have ingredients that are not Nick's favourite, but I think the right kind of these kind of ingredients will make a delicious drink. I have been proved wrong before <laughs> well first of all let's mix up this bad boy so we're gonna go to our isolation kitchens isolation kitchens isolation, isolation kitchens sean connery's still in there from the medicine man he's still there can't get rid of him <laughs> just won't go away we are gonna go shake up a storm we will see you in a minute see you in a bit and we're back hello we have our artist's Special, Nick. We do. It is a beautiful colour. It is a gorgeous colour. A deep red colour. You are supposed to garnish it with a little sprig of red currant, but I couldn't find any red currant, so I've used chopped onions. Okay. No, I haven't. It's an option. (laughs) Our artist special. Do you want to talk to the ingredients, or shall I? Uh, Oh, well, I can do. We have. We have Mm -hmm. Irish whiskey. Yes, I do. We have sherry. Lemon juice. Mm. And red currant syrup. Which is intriguing, which I've never, ever, ever used as an ingredient before. Neither have I. Um, so, um. so normally Nick has a very well stocked, well, the poisonous cabinet is very, very well stocked. But on this occasion, there just happened to be a couple of ingredients that I had rather than he had. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm not a fan. I'm not a whiskey drinker. I'm not a fan of the whiskey. And I'm not a fan of the sherry either. So I think I think there might be some sherry left over from about 12 Christmases ago. Um, somewhere <laughs> at the back. Um, that someone probably bought me at some point. Going, yeah, you like drinks. Have this. It's been sitting it's in my like cup for years. Bristol cream or <laughs> exactly something what like it is, that. Yeah. Cooking sherry. That's the level of sherry that's in my cupboard. So we did think about, you know, sometimes you can adapt these recipes. And actually in Diffords, it says you can you can use scotch instead of Irish whiskey. But when I looked at it, it called for Jameson's. It called for Oloroso sherry. Now, I, I know nothing about I sherry. I have no idea. But, and my accent is about to change because through no fault of my own, <laughs> I was looking at Irish whiskey and thinking, mm, I have Jameson's when you can have Bushmills, Northern Irish whiskey. Aha. So I've been to the Bushmills distillery many, many times. To get this. Just to get drunk. Around just, the just distillery. Run, around to the distillery. It's the thing with your Northern Irish, you just got a hotline to like, the woman's out of whiskey for God's sake. And uh, I got some, uh, the beautifully named Black Bush. Bushmills. Black Bush is triple distilled as an Irish whiskey. It's aged in sherry casks and bourbon casks, and the sherry casks they use are the Oloroso sherry casks. Well, look at that. It all links together. There we together. go. So actually, that's the beauty of Bushmills and, and Black Bush in particular. Very nice. It is a blend, but it's really delicious, and you get those notes of the lovely bourbon and the and the sherry through, so that's what I don't care. So I want to drink the cocktail. <laughs> I, I knew I could see on Nick's face. Whiskey means nothing Whiskey. to me, woman. Move it on, move it on. Speed no, it up. God speed damn it, it I never I get drink. to do this. I am going to drag this shit out, Nick. Anyway, and the sherry, yeah, Oloroso, managed to find that. Seems very nice. Uh, the red currant syrup. Yes, this is a thing. I had to improvise by getting some red currant jelly and reducing it down into a syrup. That's how I so did have you this. made these cocktails with jam? Not, uh, yeah, pretty much. Right. Okay. I like jam. Well, who doesn't? 
don't. Who doesn't like jam? <laughs> anyway, let's dive in and see. Yes. It's all the flavours that Nick hates in one lovely Apart glass. Apart from jam. I like jam. Apart from jam. Let's go for a try. That's actually very nice. Yeah. The fruitiness from the syrup is quite, really mellows it all. That's very pleasant. It's a, it's, a, it's a surprising one, isn't it? It's like, yeah, the sweetness and the lemon. Yep, it really blends in. I mean, let's say, it is incredibly strong. I would have one of those. If I have more than that, I might be on the floor. I really like that. If we had just picked out um, any brand is available but Bells or Famous Grouse, it would have tasted vile. That's really nice. Really no, I'd pleasant. Go, I'd go with that, absolutely. That is it's mean, a classy kind of... Old... I mean, it is a classic as well. I mean, it is a classic. It's, it's, a, it's one from the 20s. So, mm-hmm. in the Savoy cocktail book. I didn't think I would like it as much as right. I did. you're going to have to make that again. I shall, I shall. I took such care and effort making that. And I <laughs> was the precision, Nick, that I took for mixing. Normally, I just fucking improvise on my own ones. But I was like, oh, God, I have to make it right for Nick. <laughs> you have outdone yourself. It oh, is beautiful. I am, I am delighted with that. I am delighted with that for this particular story. And I also put it in my fancy uh, Waterford crystal glass. So, I'm feeling very merry and pleased with myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we have our cocktails firmly in hand. Nick, you're ready. Ready for a story. Oh, yeah. I, I Yes, go for it. I'm story. <laughs> you sound surprised. Like, like what's the story? No, it's a story. There's a story too. Can I not go to bed? Let's do a story. Let's do a story. All right. In 1889, a rather popular writer, pens an essay about a young man long since dead, but who fascinated the literature and the arts world. The subject of this brief memoir 
though of an extremely artistic temperament, followed many masters other than art. Being not merely a poet and a painter, an art critic, an antiquarian, a writer of prose, an amateur of beautiful things and a dilettant of things delightful, but also a forger of no mean or ordinary capabilities, and a subtle and secret poisoner, almost without rival in this or any age. Very dramatic. I like the drama. Indeed. We shall come back to the identity of that writer. <laughs> but this week, yes, we are going to look at the quite frankly fabulous case of Thomas <laughs> Griffith Wainwright. Artist, author, and serial killer? Mm. <laughs> right, that's it. That's the story. <laughs> you look so excited for this story. You have, you I am so you, excited so for the story. It's one that I've been meaning to visit and then started to start doing the research. <laughs> There's just gems in here. <laughs> yes, a 100% dandy of Regency era England and a man who would go on to inspire tales from the likes of Charles Dickens and Edward Bulwer Lytton. Thomas Griffiths Wainwright was born in 1794 into an affluent family in Richmond, London. His start was tinged with tragedy. His mother, Anne, sadly died in childbirth and that broke her father's heart. Uh, his grandfather, Ralph Griffiths, great name, was the <laughs> editor of the rather prestigious um, Monthly Review. Ooh, fancy, fancy. Yes, but the family was uh, was quite well off. Obviously, he was a respected editor. Um, his father also, little side note, had the foresight to buy with a friend the rights to the erotic novel Fanny Hill. Well, excellent. Yes, well before him. it was banned for obscenity, <laughs> so that made his it made him much as moolah. Yeah, lots of cash. <laughs> Have you read Fanny Hill? I, saw, I know, I'm not. I know that I know the name, but I've never actually read it. I've read bits of it. Well, you I've, just I've... read the rude bits. Yes, very much so. <laughs> In a book that was called Old Fashioned Erotica. It's filth, filth. Filth. <laughs> but Thomas's father, a lawyer, sadly passed away a few years later. Thomas was orphaned at a quite a young age, but he was lucky he went to live with his grandparents and their rather stylish home in Chiswick. Ooh. Oh, Ooh. You like Chiswick? I like Chiswick. I don't like All words. of Nick's old horns. And so you can imagine as he's growing up, uh, Ralph, uh, the editor of the Monthly Review, it was very well connected in literary circles. So Thomas's immersions into this fanciful bohemian world of entertainment and literature and art and celebrity spotting to an extent would have started at quite a young age. Grandfather wasn't particularly fond of his grandson, though. <laughs> it's always encouraging well it, i don't think there's any kind of hint of that he was mistreated i think possibly he resented his grandson because he inadvertently killed his daughter through childbirth yeah yeah, yeah which is quite sad but the grandfather went he was a very wealthy man but when he died in 1809 when thomas was about 15 he left him a rather meager amount in his will i mean he would have had a lot of money only around 5250 pounds was left to thomas now in today's money that's pretty that's substantial still probably, yeah still a decent chunk C certainly enough to live on comfortably if one has modest tastes <laughs> shall we say and when his grandmother passed away a couple of years later when thomas was about 17 there's just a roll call of death through is his it, family is, it, is, is he started already no no <laughs> there's no indication that yeah. he had anything to do with his obviously he had something to do with his mother's death yeah not not through his own choice i feel <laughs> no he didn't he wasn't poisoning her on the way out his father no just tragedy and his grandparents they were old they, they died but when his grandmother died, he moved into the care of his uncle George. And Charles was the heir to the Griffith 
fortune. He was also a writer, so Thomas continued to benefit from the family's wealth. He also studied at Greenwich Academy, which was a private mm. school. There's some reports saying Hammersmith Academy. I think it's actually Greenwich Academy. Apparently, he was taught by Charles Burney. Have you heard of Charles I Burney? I don't know who Charles Burney is. He's a very famous scholar and chaplain to George III. I have never heard of George Burney. I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is, I, but everyone was like, oh, isn't that fancy? Are you sure it's not Hammersmith? Because Greenwich is a long way from Chiswick. It could be. Some say mm. Greenwich, some say Hammersmith. I mean, I don't think they're worried about catchment area at that time. You're going to be sent <laughs> to the true. good school. Have you got the cash? <laughs> <laughs> have you got the moolah? Um, he comes out of school, and interestingly enough, he has in his late teens the idea of joining the army. Well, it was the fashionable thing. You get a, a smart red uniform. I don't think it was any out of any sense of duty. It was uh, He wasn't terribly interested in working his way up the ranks. Uh, what happens in those days if you want to join the army, but you don't really fancy being a private, you can buy a commission. Yep. So his uncle helped him to buy a commission. This is where you can pay to be made an officer in the cavalry or infantry regiments without having to wait for a promotion there were various justifications for this all of which are pretty tenuous apart from right at the bottom of the list going it was all about class literally you had to have okay, money. yeah gentlemen <laughs> make the best officers oh totally they make the best totally officers. totally was abandoned later on because of massive corruption and incompetence <laughs> across the board. But yeah, they're not cheap to come by. Didn't indeed to the other hardworking officers either, if you just walk in on a commission mm. with a funny hat on. But he served as a cornet, which is the lowest ranking officer. He didn't serve as a musical instrument. Despite my research, I couldn't I think you that. mean. I think it's potentially coronet. Coronet? I think a cornet is an ice cream. Well, maybe he was that. <laughs> I think it's spelt cornet. Is it? Yeah, I, will, okay. I will Google this. How is it? No, you know you are. I, I apologise. You are cornet. C o r n e t. Cornet. There we are. That's a cornetto you're thinking of as well. Yeah, probably. I <laughs> <laughs> don't. The whiskey's gone to my head. <laughs> <laughs> you had one sip, my God. I had one sip, but all cornet. I'm thinking about is now it, is I ice thought, cream. No, a, corn, a cornet is a trumpet as well, isn't it? Well, he was one of he was well, everything. Yes, he was an ice cream man. He was a musician. He was a poet. In Do there, you think but... he played the tunes on his instrument for the ice cream man <laughs> to lure the children to him? Just well, no. my mind just made that link. No, he was the well. Either way, he was the lowest ranking officer. Now, at that lowest rank, that would have cost around four hundred and fifty pounds at the time. That is equivalent to £41,000 today. See, that's a lot of money for the lowest rank. For the lowest rank. I think, I looked it up, I think on the, I think it's in the foot guard, and if you are, uh, it's not Major General, it's it's another rank, it's, it's gone out of my head, but it was something like the equivalent of £800,000 to buy up to that level immediately. <laughs> Which is foolish on all levels, clearly. Mm, but imagine the hat you'd get. <laughs> It'd be worth spending £800,000 just on the hat. Well, his time in the army, regardless, no matter the expense that was paid into it, did not end well. Um, after a year, he left the army. He sold on his commission. You could do that. You could basically sell it and someone could have your place. Great, great, great system for leadership. And it's just after he left the army, he's said to have suffered a severe mental breakdown. Or to use his own words, he was broken like a vessel of clay. Mm -hmm. And this breakdown prostrated him for some time. It was suggested by the writer Havelock Ellis, who's a very interesting person himself, that Wainwright was never normal after this period of his life. This period of this mental breakdown that is written about 
is very sketchy. He didn't actually go to war or anything, he didn't? No, oh god, so no. It's it was, not like he had the yeah. horrors of war. He, It's not like he was in the field. He just didn't like getting up early or something. Oh, no, he was sent to Cork. He was in Cork on, on no garrison duty. I think he had sort of glamorous <laughs> ideas of going to Canada. Well, keep those Irish under check, you know. <laughs> Get up all sorts of mischief. Oh, and if you go to Cork, oh god, it's a lawless place down there. It's the South. But either way, he comes home from the army and despite this setback, he has another plan. He has chosen to become a fully fledged dandy <laughs> nice and that very much was a thing back oh, yes. then sort of Bo brummel sort of thing oh absolutely yeah Bo brummel yeah. byron on occasion the count d'orsay yes being a dandy is essentially it's my dream it's a... <laughs> i'm gonna read some descriptions out nick and it is like your cv <laughs> A dandy is defined by, essentially it's a man who places particular importance on the physical appearance, uh, exceptional clothes, refined language and leisurely hobbies. All with an appearance of nonchalance. Absolutely. (laughs) A dandy is very different from a fop. Those are two absolute things. So fops are much more um, extravagant. They're much more silly in a way, in their kind of costume. A bit more, bit more comical in there. Exactly. Sort of. Whereas a dandy yeah. is is a fashionista, is yeah. a little bit more serious. Desperately completely... serious, yeah. Oh yeah, it is the, the total model who is not looking at you, doesn't get out of bed for less than £5,000 and is wearing some stunning couture. That's a dandy, in boy form. In 1836, Thomas Carlyle wrote, A dandy is a clothes-wearing man. The man whose trade, office and existence consists in the wearing of clothes. Every faculty of his soul, spirit, person, person is heroically consecrated to this one object, the wearing of clothes. <laughs> Wisely and well, so that others dress to live, he lives to dress. Marvel, that is brilliant. <laughs> I love that. So Thomas was described at this time, one description, again from that famous writer who we'll come back to later. His beautiful rings, his antique cameo breast pin, his pale lemon-coloured kid gloves love that were well known indeed and indeed regarded by Hazlitt as being the signs of a new manner in literature while his rich curly hair fine eyes and exquisite white hands gave him the dangerous and delightful distinction of being different from others that's brilliant I love it he is setting himself out to be a dandy and if you want to succeed as a dandy you must have a career in the world of art marvellous Art runs through his life. It's a huge part of his existence and really what he tries to make a career out of. It's the homestead of the dandy as well. So he starts trying to forge a living out of being a dandy and working in the world of art. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to do that? I'd like to do that. Oh, gotcha. Sign me up. But you can do you can pull off the fashion. I can't. <laughs> I can imagine you in some exquisite pale lemon-coloured kid gloves. Mm. It was interesting because I, I actually Bo Rummel. I think probably slightly before this time. Um, not not, di- a, not hugely different. Not hugely, not hugely different, but perhaps like twenty years or so. And he he had leather boots that every morning were washed in champagne. <laughs> they, were, they were cleaned. His his leather boots were cleaned with champagne every morning. Much like my liver. <laughs> So it's like, ah, just so unbelievably wasteful and decadent. It's just like, ah, yes. So Thomas tries to make a living, as I said. The the roll call of names through the story is staggering. He takes up painting and he works as an apprentice with Thomas Phillips, very famous portrait painter. If you've seen the portrait of Lord Byron, the first sort of portrait idea of Lord Byron that comes to your head, he did it. William Blake, Thomas Phillips did it. Thomas Wainwright 
also did a sketch of Lord Byron. And he embarks on a literary career. And he can write. He has a turn of phrase. He wrote quite successfully as an art critic and an essayist for a number of publications, such as a literary pocketbook, Blackwood's Magazine, the Foreign Quarterly Review and the London Magazine. And it's particularly for the London Magazine that he's well known. And while writing for them, he employed some pen names. Would you like to hear them? I would love to. Are they names I'd recognise? No. Oh, okay. No, but they are spectacular. Oh, I want to know. I want to know. Okay. Okay, the first one. I hope I get this right. Igome Bonmont. Oh, fancy. Bonmont. Bonmont. Igome Bonmont. (laughs) Good name. Number two. All right. Janus Weathercock. (laughs) (laughs) Janus, Janus doesn't really matter how childish are we <laughs> oh it's a con <laughs> <laughs> okay all right wait <laughs> i have to set myself up for the last one okay you ready yep cornelius van Vinkbooms. <laughs> <laughs> sorry say, say, say that one again <laughs> cornelius van Vinkbooms. Vinkbooms. oh that is excellent <laughs> oh, i'm changing my name tomorrow <laughs> that's he was known as Van Vinkbooms. <laughs> I love that. that awesome. You see why I want to share this story. Right, we have to make a cocktail called that. <laughs> Cornelius Van Vinkbooms. <laughs> if I get, an- if I ever get another cat, that is its name. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, and, and his name. This was quite a famous name. People write about it with no hint of irony. Ah, Van Vinkbooms' work was very good. <laughs> yes, and Janice or Janus. <laughs> There we are. Well, named after a Roman god is very fancy, you know. Janus? What? Is that Jupiter? No, it's a Roman god of um, uh, doorways. Two-headed chap. Doorways? What? Yeah, no, he had two, two he had, um, head, but with a face on both sides. So looking both ways. As a... Oh, yes. Sorry, I think it was like god of doors, that shit. But god of doors. <laughs> I'm the god of door handles and hinges. Oh, I'm very fancy. <laughs> So uh, under these many pseudonyms, and while he was painting and he was writing, his life actually seemed to be going quite well. He wore the finest of clothes. He hosted the finest of parties. And he was collecting exceptional art as well, not only drawing it, but collecting it. Told the finest of jokes was quite the wit. He was friends with, or at least acquaintances with, Charles Lamb. Again, the roll call of names here, who praised his writing and said he was accomplished. Uh, He was a massive fan of Wordsworth. He even exhibited writings in the Royal Academy. So he was doing yeah, all right. Doing all right. Quite, quite a good life. And he yeah. looked fantastic. Absolutely. And no one laughed at his name. And also, he fell in love. Oh. Yes. He fell in love with the 18-year-old daughter of his boarding house landlady. Her name was Eliza Ward. They met. Apparently, they were smitten immediately. And two years after meeting, they married in St. Martin on the Fields Church. Lovely. Oh. Lovely story. Yes. But... Oh, God. This sort of heady lifestyle, it don't come cheap, Nick. Ooh, no. No. Ooh, no. And Thomas was running out of money. And when you run out of money, what do you do? You amass some debts. You start Absolutely. borrowing. Because he has a fancy, fancy lifestyle to uphold. The inheritance from he received from his grandfather had been invested in the Bank of England. So he only received the dividends. Now, this was about £200 a year. So you think about it, it's about 20 grand a year. Not enough to keep up a desperately fancy lifestyle. Comfortable lifestyle, not fancy. The rest of the money was held in trust for his wife and eventual young son. Other relatives of his family were the trustees on this, so he couldn't access the capital. 
He could only have the dividends. So this was left by his grandfather? Or was he also didn't trust him enough to look after his own money? I'm not sure whether the grandfather stipulated that or whether he oh. put it in trust with so, the family. Not, I can't be trusted with well, my own cash. Will you look after it for me? It seems like an amazing <laughs> moment of insight and, and benevolence on his yeah. part if he's decided I will put this away for my wife and children. And, and other members of his family were the trustees. He can't get at the capital. He's only got this measly £200 a year. Oh. Poor, poor him. I love this sort of age as well, where you can say, it's like, what do you make? I, I make 200 a year. How many horses do you have? Five. That's too many. So he took to his first crime in 1823. Not what we would think. Not the entire basis of this entire podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> he took, as we alluded to earlier, to forgery. Uh... Because he couldn't get the trustees of this investment to sign it over to him or to access any of the capitals, he forged their signatures. This was a crime punishable by death oh, wow. at that time. That seems somewhat extreme. For stealing your own money. Well, forgery. Forgery well, was, yes. that was it. Forgery was, was a big, was a no-no at the time, because I suppose... It still is now, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you're not going to be killed. No, this is true. This is true. Uh, or are you? Depends what you forge, a, a I Well, if you forge a bank <laughs> slip in someone's handwriting, maybe you are killed. <laughs> Or set upon by geese. I'm going to pretend to be the queen. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> I shall need a copy of a signature and five of your corgis to guard me. <laughs> no, he didn't do any of that. He okay, forged fine. the trustee's signature in order to gain half his capital. He was, he was, you know, he was, he was restrained. He only took out two thousand five hundred pounds. Now that is a handsome sum. That is that is going to be fine, surely for for a few years. It's going to keep you in in in, in lemon gloves and, and big hats. <laughs> gloves made of lemons and and monocles as the size of your face. Just one massive <laughs> monocle. <laughs> Just, it's like a dick measuring contest at these things oh yeah this monocle <laughs> you look like a cyclops <laughs> yes he has the money to buy his giant monocle but within but a year he had burned through it all those monocles cupboards full yep. <laughs> shelf on shelf of monocles he hasn't even had a party yet he's just got a pile of monocles and there's fires all over his house because the sunlight is being magnified. <laughs> That's where the money's gone. It's all burnt. <laughs> so, well, he's run out of money. What does he do? Well, he knows he's got half the capital in there. Forges again. Ooh. Forges signatures and he empties the account completely. Okay, good, good, good. We're okay for money. Him and Eliza, his lovely, sexy wife. We've got money. We can keep having our parties. But the money runs out mm. again. Time's getting desperate. He starts to have to sell off his art to secure loans. The debts are mounting up and up. It's just he can't keep his head above water. And in 1828, they're so hard up that him and Eliza move back in with his now very elderly uncle at the Chiswick Over estate. Chiswick. Yeah, it's over at Chiswick. It's a beautiful house mm. as well. Well, I imagine then probably Chiswick was relatively rural, I suppose, back then. It was on the outskirts of London. It's on the outskirts rather than, yeah. It's a beautiful estate, mm -hmm. and Thomas is, is very keen to inherit it. He is in line to get it, but it's a big house. It's fine. Uncle George is like, no, come in, come in. I could use the company. That's a lot of monocles. Please put them in the <laughs> monocle wing. Not long after their arrival, poor, poor Uncle George was taken ill. Oh, no. Struck by horrible stomach pains and died convulsing. Oh. Yeah, that's a leap, isn't it? From forgery to... To that, George is old. Does he have Does he have kids and stuff of his? No. Ah. The estate will pass to Thomas. What goes to Thomas? The estate passes to Thomas, including five thousand pounds cash, all the house and the grounds, and an entire library in there. And the library would be worth the books alone would be worth fortune. a fortune. There is no investigation of George's death 
medical notes, can't see them. But he dies. Thomas and Eliza are rich again. They now have a lavish house as well in Chiswick. Gotcha. They've got the fancy parties you could have Fancy, there. fancy parties. They have room to spare as well. Eliza's mother and her two stepsisters, um, Helen and Madalina, great name, move into the estate. Madalina's a strange Spanish girl. I don't know she's <laughs> Constant with her castanets. <laughs> shush, shush, Madalina. These oh, monocles nice. work so well for this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not as simple as just having a lovely house and entertaining people. The it's upkeep for it. Yeah. Exactly. The upkeep of a huge country house comes with massive bills. People always forget the bills. Having to host all of these parties, the catering, the lighting, the costumes, and also and just the, the staff the you'd staff. have to have to keep such a place going you need an income coming through and the five thousand pounds cash burnt through immediately the family has to sell off the library the precious library in order to upkeep the house and to keep the parties going because thomas has become famous in social circles Mm. for his parties and it's not long before the debts are mounting up again because people expected the most extravagant things and if you were a dandy you had to look the part oh god absolutely can't be wearing the same cravat twice but the debts are mounting up to maintain this lifestyle it's lucky then that eliza's mother she succumbed to a sudden swift illness Mm. just after updating her will in eliza's sole (laughs) favor well how convenient how convenient so little bit more money comes into their pockets to keep the wall from the door. It's never enough. All the money Mm. keeps running out and they need a new plan. You can imagine Thomas and Eliza are probably sitting at the dining table with the family, looking around this huge house, thinking about what they can sell, what can they insure, what can they scam, what can they forge. Oh, hello, Helen. Yes, in 1830. Mm -hmm. Rude. Their eyes metaphorically fall on Eliza's 21-year-old sister, Helen. Eliza decides to take her sibling on a lovely, lovely trip to London. She's going to show her all the wondrous sights. All the insurance companies in the city. (laughs) Oh, those are exciting places to visit when you're a young girl out of the town. (laughs) Oh, yes. Have you seen this one over here? This is the oldest one. This is the second oldest one. This is the third oldest one. She takes her sister to 15 different insurance companies and she attempts to secure life insurance policies on Helen at each one. They don't work 100% of the time, but Mm. she gets enough insurance policies to the tune of £16,000. Wow. In that day and age. That is around £1.5 million. But she she just does it multiple, multiple times and the insurance Mm. companies don't talk to each other that much at that time. So she's able to secure this much so they walk away after their lovely day out in london helen's probably crying (laughs) and she pushes them in the river or something (laughs) no she doesn't no they get home they get home they go back to the estate and sure enough in december of that year helen falls ill so eliza's well into the wife is well knowing what's going on yeah it eliza knows what's going on 100 percent. let's not try and dress it up for one bloody second in fact one of the servants sees eliza giving helen medicine for her troubles medicine Medicine. Mm. when eliza falls ill thomas calls in a very fashionable doctor the most fashionable doctor in town oh the most who else would you ask of course, of course. And the most fashionable doctor must be the most most educated and the most, uh, you know, experienced and That's the most professional, isn't it? Yes, yes, he must be great. So she has headaches and partial blindness. 
He prescribes bloodletting and laxatives. It's the way forward. <laughs> Go for it, I think. You got ghosts in your blood, woman. <laughs> ghosts, oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's just trying to just purge her of all fluids while she's going, help me. It does not work. Poor Helen dies in convulsions, mm. displaying all the symptoms that the previous <gasps> people who have died yes. have displayed and that we now know. Can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Strychnine. Strychnine. <laughs> the convulsions give it away. There it is. It's the convulsions. Luckily, just before she died, she'd made her will, naming Eliza as a sole benefactor and Thomas as the executor of her will. Oh, how convenient. Wasn't that lucky? So Helen is dead. Dead. They got 1.5 million equivalent coming to them. Thomas and Eliza dab their eyes. Oh my God, it's so sad. It's yeah, so sad. sad. Off to the insurance sad. companies. Yeah. Off they go to the insurance companies. Money, please. The insurance companies go, no. This is just later the same year. It's the same day. No, it's it's well, it's in December. I think we've gone into well, it's it's a week or two later. There's not exactly a timeline, but the insurance companies obviously look into this. Go, why did a 21 year old healthy woman yeah. die? They go, this is this is very strange. We're not happy, and they talk to each other. I think they talk to each other. There's implications that they know. There's multiple policies out on this woman's life, so they go. They sort of tell the police, but their their intention is to sue Thomas. See, I I, I love that. Is that we're not actually bothered about this woman might have been murdered. <laughs> That, that is that is entirely inconsequential to the insurance company. What we are concerned about is that we might be out of pocket. 100%. This starts the <laughs> suing of the century. Everyone starts suing each other oh, for payout. The world is no one a gives place. a shit that these people are dead. One thing that's holding them back about really investigating whether Helen was murdered or not, or even pursuing the murder charge, is science. Remember, we are in the 1830s now, mm. 1820s, 1830s. The science has not advanced. Not All the cases we talked about beforehand, we've, we've been mostly a few years ahead or a long yeah, time yeah, yeah. back. Check, check. There's no means of detecting strychnine mm. in the body, really, effectively, unless you have a genius pioneer of the science. I think there's three autopsies carried out on Helen. There's certainly one. There's reports that there's up to three, but nothing is found. There's no evidence of strychnine. And this is where... You can see where the the logic of poison is even a few oh, years later. Absolutely, yeah. Poison is not detectable in the body. But they the main thing it. is, is that the insurance companies think that he is committed insurance fraud. Thomas himself is still forging signatures. He's trying to sue the insurance companies on behalf of other members of his family because some of the insurance policies on Helen's life he put in the other sister's name uh, um, and other members of his family so he acts all benevolent going they're not paying out for Helen's death don't worry I'll act on your behalf I'll sue you everyone is suing each other for this money and this woman is dead this starts ramping up these investigations around insurance fraud not about murder yeah. are being levelled at him so completely without guilt or any worry at all he flees to France as the innocent often do. Again, the details of this are a little bit bizarre. The investigations maybe are bringing too much attention onto him. Maybe he's smart enough to go, OK, th there's only a matter of time before mm. they find out that I've committed forgery elsewhere, which has the death penalty. Also, I've killed some people, but screw them. No one that will know about matter. that. There are rumours and perpetuated later, perhaps, that he had actually gone to France because he was chasing a woman, a woman he'd fallen in love with. He went there for romance yeah. and he was such a dastardly fiend. It's probably just gossip. But either way, he does go to France. He leaves Eliza and his son in London and he hides in France for years. Oh, wow. Long time. He's over there for seven years. That's a yeah. very long time. Yeah, exactly. Eliza lives in poverty as a single mother and he 
reportedly tries to make a living as an artist in France. Again, the famous writer. There's an allegation that something else untoward happened in France when he went over there that he went to Boulogne to visit the father of a young lady that he was in love with this lady he was reportedly pursuing while he was also running away from the authorities Mm. and while he was there there was some sort of back and forth that he convinced the father of this young lady to ensure his life with one of the companies that was coming after him and as soon as the necessary formalities had been gone through the policy executed thomas dropped some crystals of strychnine into the father's coffee and they sat together one evening after dinner he himself did not gain any monetary advantage of doing this his aim was simply revenge himself of the first office that refused to pay him the price of his sin with helen's death his friend died the next day in his presence highly unlikely Mm. But then reportedly he left Boulogne and he went on a sketching tour around (laughs) France while this is going on. The most picturesque parts of Brittany and then he stayed with friends. He went down to uh, the countryside in Saint-Omer. He moved to Paris where he tries to eke out a living. Now some reports are that he did very well as a portrait artist, others that he didn't live very well at all. But either way, he's in France Mm. for seven years. Back home, the investigations into his actions raged on. And this is when finally, well, not after seven years, but during this seven years, the trustees of the original inheritance trust, the family members who have just suddenly woken up one day and gone, huh, I've noticed Eliza is living in poverty in London. Where are all the dividends from the big capital that you put into the bank going? And so they go and talk to the Bank of England. The Bank of England going, no, you, you withdrew the money years ago. And of course they go, forgery, forgery, Mm. forgery has been committed. It's taken them a hell of a long time to twig. (laughs) Oh my God. Literally, while Thomas is in France, all these cases are being mounted up by the insurance companies to sue him for, for fraud. By the Bank of England now, they've got they've got this conviction of uh, a forgery. They can get him, but he's in France. There is no extradition treaty at the time with France. They can't get him back over. They try all sorts of different complicated ways of trying to get him back. He's saying he used a forged passport, whatever. They can't get him while he's in France. So they think they're screwed. That is until Thomas decides to come back to the UK. Fool. Maybe he thought it had been long enough. Maybe he thought no one would be after him anymore. Maybe he was chasing another woman, as some people romantically claim. Maybe he was just an idiot. <laughs> Let's go with the last one, I think. Let's go with that. Either way, he was found in the street. Again, there were reports that, that he hid in a, a flat with his curtains drawn. So That'll no one would it. see him. That'll do it. Uh, he did that and then one day he heard a commotion in the street and he opened his curtains and he went out to see what the commotion was and someone pointed him out going there's Thomas Wainwright the forger who's doing that no no that, 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 that did not happen that did not happen well he is arrested arrested for forgery not for yeah, murder yeah f- forget the murder forget, forget the murder oh screw that never mind three dead people meh forgery mm. exactly and it's amazing when he's in jail this sort of causes ripple of scandal as well I mean people love gossip at the time and he is visited, still apparently. <laughs> Sorry? Still do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not just at the time. <laughs> well, that's it. They, they, they just... This is great. And the people yeah. around, uh, the famous people, the literary characters, they, they, they go and see him. They go and visit. They, they're happy to talk about it at the parties. Oh, like Thomas... Oh, yes, I know. I knew him. Mm. And I know all these things about him. Well, everyone loves a scandal. People are talking about all sorts of things. There's, again, a piece of writing later where it says, there's no doubt that the, the poison that he used was strychnine. In one of the beautiful rings of which he was so proud and which he used to serve to show off the fine modelling of his delicate ivory hands, he used to carry 
crystals of the Indian Nux Vomica, poison, nearly tasteless, difficult of discovery, incapable of almost infinite dilution. <laughs> a poison ring. Classic. Poison ring. This People are spreading thing. these rumours. Charles Dickens sees him in jail. Charles Dickens does not know him. He's there. He's a reporter, obviously, at the time. Uh, he later writes about the case. Mm. That he's interested in him. And while he's in jail, Thomas is still upholding this idea of himself as a gentleman. And he tells a friend, this is brilliant. I don't know why I find this so funny. I will tell you one thing in which I have succeeded to the last. I have been determined through my life to hold the position of a gentleman. I have always done so. And I do still. It is the custom of this place that each of the inmates of a cell shall take his morning's turn of sweeping it out. I occupy a cell with a bricklayer and a sweep, but they never hand the broom to me. Okay, not entirely sure. Well, well, okay, fine. When the guards come round, they only give the broom to the bricklayer and the sweep. They would never ask a gentleman to sweep his cell. And he's upset by this? No, he thinks it's great. Okay. No, he's, he's just showing off, going like, you know, oh no, they only hand it to the other prisoners. No, to me, the, I'm a gentleman. Class. The working classes, exactly. They know I'm a gentleman. I don't think anyone is doing that. They're probably just like, he shitted it. Let's just not do this. <laughs> He'll get it wrong. He'll it... use the other end to sweep or something. It'll go, <laughs> it won't work well. <laughs> Thomas is charged with four counts of forgery. He pleads not guilty to all of them because they carry the death penalty. Well, the higher charges carry mm-hmm. the death penalty. But in a roundabout way, he obviously has a discussion. He manages to commute his sentence at somewhere along the line to have the two higher charges of forgery dropped and he pleads guilty to two lower charges of forgery. I think it's obtaining money by forgery. I don't know how that's lower, Uh, but because it gets him out of the death penalty and he thinks that's good, that's good, fine. Okay, I can take a few years in jail and be fine. He's escaped that. What he's sentenced to instead is to be transported to Australia. (laughs) And he's like, whoa, no, no, no. No, 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 no. That would be, that's not going to be much fun either. No, he he didn't know that was part of the bargain. He's very upset by it. And he writes to the Home Secretary and everyone going, no, no. I'm a gentleman. I can't go to Australia. (laughs) I can't, I can't work a broom. (laughs) No, it doesn't work. He tries all these letters and in all these letters, he very much points the finger at Eliza. At his wife. Oh, rude. Rude. Well, he says that she was part of it. She was, she was, she was the instigator. She was doing this. He doesn't deny his involvement in the forgery. Points a finger at her, but it doesn't work. He's sent to Aust- to Tasmania in eighteen thirty-seven. Mm. Interesting enough, he spent ten years in the penal colony. He started off working on a chain gang. Great stuff. <laughs> really, not that fun. Grim oh, work. Man. And he spent two years breaking rocks, which is horrible. <laughs> yeah, not not a, not a fun way to spend your time. He managed to be transferred to a hospital to become a hospital orderly. And thanks to his good behaviour, he was able to work as an artist again. In the hospital, he started doing sketches of the patients, of the staff, mm. and he was quite well praised. He His drawings of people either were exchanged in some cases for money or just for better treatment or for favours. He even painted the lieutenant governor of the colony. And many of his pictures that he painted during that time survive to this day in public and private collections across Australia. Mm. Eventually, he was given a conditional pardon, which allowed him his freedom. He was able to make his own living in Hobart. He died just two years after having his freedom of apoplexy. So he didn't go back to the UK? He died in 1846. He was sentenced to to be in Australia for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. But the power of his legacy 
survived for all his attempts mm. to be a gentleman and to be recognized in society this world of gossip and style over substance some of the greatest writers of our generation went on to tell stories about him and claim to have known him people talked about these stories about the strychnine he carried in the ring charles dickens allegedly based his story short story hunted down on thomas and mm -hmm. edward bulwer lytton as we said similarly said to have based parts of lucretia on his life He's mentioned in another Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Illustrious Client. Oh, we had a lot of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, there we are. And that popular writer from the start who said at the end of his memoirs, it is gratifying to note that fiction has paid some homage to one who was so powerful with pen, pencil and poison. Is it Oscar Wilde? It's none other than Oscar Wilde. Ah! I knew it. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, absolutely fantastic. And Oscar nice. Wilde also has two of the other quotes, the best quotes about Thomas, about his life. In this piece that he wrote about Thomas Wainwright, Pen, Pencil and Poison, you can read it online and it is well worth a read. It's wonderful. He does summarise some of the rumours. You can tell there's his own artistic take on it. I'm sure. But he reports in this, he said that while in prison, Thomas was asked if he poisoned Helen. To which he allegedly replied, Yes, it was a dreadful thing to do, but she had very thick ankles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh at that, but that's how, brilliant. <laughs> how, how could that be anyone other than Oscar Wilde? Oh, yeah, Wilde? that's uh, has, to be, uh, has to be Oscar Wilde. My God. Marvellous. <laughs> I think the final thing he said, and the final thing we'll yes. end with, is that Oscar wrote, This young dandy sought to be somebody rather than to do something. Oh, that's nice. And there is a story of that is a Thomas good story. Griffiths Wainwright. Yay. Hooray Yay. for stories. I that like has that. everything, isn't it? <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. What was, the, what was the name again? Cornelius Van Boom. Van Vinkbooms. Van Vinkbooms. I'm going to have to write that down somewhere because that's awesome. <laughs> we'll just have it, we'll have it tattooed on your body. Yes. <laughs> Janus Weathercock. And Ugome <laughs> Bomo, which almost sounds uh, just normal. Yeah, yeah that's just, that sounds like a bit like... Oh, e well, it's fine. basically... E it's, so it's like Egon or like Igome, uh, good word, Bomo. Yeah. Yeah, and that's boring. Cornelius and Big Booms. <laughs> Van Bing no, Van Bing Booms is but isn't that, the best, I mean, best that name is ever. Incredible story. How much of it do you think is true? Well, in in what way? I I think probably most of it. The reason I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, there's no trick question here. Is it test? I see none of it. I made it all up. <laughs> made it all up. I'm the greatest writer ever. No, everything that I have relayed has been in reports and uh, in all of the research that I've done and various writings about it. The facts are in there, but there's this part of me that goes, how much is embellishment over the years? How much of this is the writer's of the time there there were extracts i was really yes. glad that i found the yes, oscar yes. wilde memoir online about him because when i compared it to a lot mm. of the writings that i found about thomas rainwright they reported bits that oscar had written as fact when it's clearly a little bit of artistic license there and they were saying no this actually happened and it's a brilliant yeah. brilliant essay absolutely um, and very Oscar. And he writes all about his artistic integrity. He writes about his skills as a writer. He does a quite, a, you know, a lot of analysis on it with a few of his biting kind of comments in there. But that's where part of, that's the only place where I've actually found an ingredient for this story was where they claimed, uh, he claims that Thomas and um, Eliza with Helen brought her some poison jelly, but nowhere else says that. And so it makes you kind of think in the rest of that story, it's so good. Yeah. But all these people who claim to know him, all these writers, did they really know him or did they just want to say that? Well, it's, it's probably the sort of thing is that 
do you know him? Well, I met him in passing at a party once. And then something dramatic happens and you're their best mate. <laughs> I think everyone's guilty of that, really. Are they? Um, well, I think I, you do you do you bellish things or something. I, I met him once and I could see it in his eyes. He was a wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good story. And yes, yeah, so, so many people in this. And this, I, it's, it's one of those things that you... It's surprising he's not more prominent in popular culture. Yeah, I, I don't think many people would know his name. And I suppose also it didn't help but because he was never convicted of murder no never convicted of murder so just a forgery it's just of the forgery people go did he kill his uncle did he kill his mother-in-law well it's certainly a coincidence it's certainly it's certainly it's yeah, it seems like a very close coincidence if he didn't you also got to think well how far back did the wife know what was going on how much because obviously she's very very much with the sister obviously and then was she was she in it with the mother Maybe because the, the the will had just been changed to well, make it all goes to her. the sole beneficiary and things. So was she in it right from the very start? Mm, um, perhaps. But she got away with everything. She, if yeah, and she would have been complicit in it. I would suspect at least two murders. Oh God, yeah, she's yeah, yeah. complicit, if not three. It's an interesting one to look at. The person is convicted for something else, and the murders. We're talking about the poisoning. It's very obvious that someone has died of strychnine poisoning, if not three people. But everyone's like, no, 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 you know, whatever. Yeah, it's it's the forgery because they just cannot. It's one of the things. What it. is yeah? What is easier to prove? Well, it's like the whole Al Capone thing. What they got him on tax evasion rather than yeah. <laughs> murder because it was easier to prove. Um, and strychnine as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. We've had a lot of art. We've had a run of arsenic recently, so it's nice yeah. to have something different. <laughs> there was one piece that said that this might have been possibly the first. I don't think it was the first strychnine murder, but the first. What even though this wasn't a murder case or a trial, high profile kind of this is the use of strychnine. It's quite early. Poison panic kicks in just after this. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit later, isn't it? The... Poison panic is in the thirties and then in the forties, and so it's, people start getting panicked about arsenic. But people are killing each other quite successfully. Oh, their poison rings. So there we go. The life of nice. Thomas Griffiths Wainwright or Cornelius Van Dickbooms, as he shall be forever known. As he shall most certainly shall be, because it's a brilliant name. It is. Well, that's another episode for us. So what do you think? Do you have theories about Thomas Wainwright? Do you think Eliza was the mastermind behind it all? Do let us know. Be in, Get in touch on the Instagram and the Facebook. So we shall, <laughs> we shall be there. Along and the Twitter. With, and, oh, and the, I always forget about the Twitter. I always, and the Twitter. I don't, I don't tweet, so I always forget about the Twitter. And the recipe for the artist special will oh. be up on social later on today highly recommend you try it it's surprisingly mm. good whiskey really drinkers good. do yeah. it and get on the irish whiskey get onto the different irish whiskey do not sit with your scotch and your bourbon in hand no the irish whiskey is a wonderful landscape to traverse <laughs> okay yeah let's let's go with that do do all of that whatever she said i like whiskey <laughs> <laughs> There will be one episode where I get really drunk and the accent's going to come oh, out yeah. massively. It doesn't say much for the accent to come out. Well, follow us, like us, share us, download this shit, guys. <laughs> but otherwise, mix yourself up a cocktail, enjoy this podcast and many others, and we will see you next week. We have been the people inside the Poisoner's Cabinet. Stay safe and remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. Bye-bye. Nice